welcome to the Soulcast for the OG Twitter crew. Um, for, probably have known you for over a year now, Mr. Benjamin Braddock. Hey, thanks for having me on. No worries at all. Uh, we were speaking just before about the sauna and how I really think I didn't mention this before, but I just wanted to mention now that like it, it really is a cornerstone of health and well being. And we were saying how, you know, you get your best writing done after a sauna. Uh, it seems to just clear everything out of the body, everything out of the mind as well, like nothing else. And you're, you're literally clearing stuff out from your body when you're sweating everything out. A lot of uh, heavy metals and toxins are excreted through sweat. But it, it, it kind of like most people are not ever either in a sauna or in a temperature that they can sweat for <clears throat> any large period of time. Like even if you're working out, part of the reason you feel good from working out is because you're sweating so much. Um, but you know, with the advent of air conditioning in a lot of gyms now, you don't really get that. So if you're listening to this and you're not doing a sauna or, you know, a hot bath soak is also a good way to get that same kind of full body heat. Uh, you need to get onto it and, you know, we can both attest to how good it is, especially in today's virus world. Yeah, you mentioned uh, hot baths. This is something I think actually uh, a Jonas Vanderplatz, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but true, uh, is one of the OG guys. He recommended it and, uh, <coughs> specifically for the PUFA detox. Basically, you need to get your body temperature up for prolonged periods to even you know, begin to chip away at, uh, some of that oxidized fat that, you know, collects inside your body and hangs out there for a very long time if you don't do something to get rid of it. So, uh, he recommended that. And then also doing the repeat carrot salad, uh, mm. you know, around the same time, because as you detox the PUFAs, you also need to take care of the, uh, extra estrogen that's in your gut all of this kind of things it helps you deal with the metabolites from that that's that's one of those things too like with uh you know with the issue of PUFA detoxing this is kind of why I'm a little leery of like people losing you know way too much too fast by going on a crash diet because I don't think any good can come of metabolizing large quantities of this stuff in such volume that you know you're detox systems can't handle it um so that's that's an added benefit too uh you know in addition to helping your lymphatic system all of these other great things saunas do they also help reverse a lot of this damage that i think is the the big issue i mean it's it's probably the main driver of disease in the west right now is are these uh toxic cooking fats say more than anything else more than xenoestrogens any of this stuff i mean it is a xenoestrogen in and of itself because when you uh metabolize it it produces very estrogenic metabolites and um you know, of course that has a major negative impact so for the people that might not really understand uh the PUFA issue um polyunsaturated fatty acids and they are your seed oils majority uh, of the ones that are kind of in our diet in the western world today which is canola oil is the big one 
vegetable oil, the generic name that sometimes is in there, soybean oil, uh, all of these things that, these oils that were basically repurposed for human consumption. They were only really used in industrial situations. They were repurposed uh, initially for animal consumption because farmers realized that if they fed these seed oils to pigs, they get fatter. And the fatter they are, the more they can sell them for at the market. So they, they started to introduce all these grains and seed oils into to cheaply fatten up uh, their produce or their animals. Now, what do you think is happening to the average person in the Western world today when everything that we eat is either cooked in or not everything that we eat, everything that most people eat, anything that's processed, anything that's cooked out or in fast food is now in our diet, uh, such a high proof of content or it's literally fried in the stuff, which is, you know, probably the worst way to consume it because you are heating it up and oxidizing it before you even put it in your body where you know we know that the oxidation potential of these things is so low because there were so it's because the seed oils seed oils are meant to be a liquid at a, a low temperature because they'll be in the soil uh, so they can germinate so when that comes in the human body which is a higher temperature uh, they're going to oxidate very quickly and like ben said um you know leave these plaque deposits which is the root of you know most obesity most overconsumption of calories so these hidden things but also metabolite uh, metabolism issues which is making everyone die of heart disease uh, and all the rest of it and other obesity related issues and even if you're not fat uh these things just i feel like whenever i taste them now in in like restaurant cooking i'll i'll i'll, I'll taste the hint of it I, on the, a potato or something that they fried it in and just, it ruins the meal for me really. And my body does sense it now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's much beyond just being fat. I mean, as far as, you know, it can give you everything from migraines to, you know, setting the stage for cancer. Um, with the oxidation, I think and one thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing that really illustrated to me, you know, just, why you really don't want this stuff to oxidize in your body is uh, a friend of mine, Bull Carson, pointed out that these oils were uh, used back, you know, in the uh, couple hundred years ago, originally like linseed oil or walnut oil, to actually, uh, when you were done with an oil painting, to preserve the painting, you would brush it over with one of these seed oils. And that would oxidize, you know, react with the room air and form a, you know, very thin but impenetrable protective coating that, you know, preserve these paintings for 500 years. I mean, that's how mm. harsh this stuff is. And that, uh, I thought that was a really good illustration because it really brings home just how nasty this stuff is uh, once it oxidizes. And it, you know, a detox protocol. I mean, you're talking four years to really get the levels in your tissues way down. So it's something that uh, you have to be really, in for that the long, long haul. You, yeah, yeah, you have to. And that's that why because... that's also why I don't I don't cheat with this stuff. I'm neurotic about it because I'm like, yeah. you know, if I put that in my body, it's not it doesn't come out easily. 
yeah, I mean, sometimes I will let slip if I'm out and about. Like, if, if you're at a restaurant, even high-end restaurants uh, will use this stuff because it's either they just want to cut costs because it's cheaper, because it's garbage, or, you know, I, I think it has a... Does it have a higher smoke point than, like, let's say, olive oil or, you know, ghee? Yeah. Or, ghee, yeah. I think, should be better. Butter, probably a bit lower. Um, but it also is relatively... They say tasteless, but you know I can taste well, it whenever it's in these what, things. What but I that's say the about argument. what I say about the smoke point is that you shouldn't rush the cooking. You shouldn't be cooking food at such high temperatures because, the yeah. fat aside, cooking food at these really high temperatures can generate carcinogens. You yeah. want to do it low and slow. This is the correct way to do things. But you know, it's it's uh, it, it all comes down to economics, man. This stuff is cheap. It can be produced. Uh, on a mass industrial scale, um, a lot of the people who are responsible for producing it, they don't consume it themselves. You know, canola oil was first developed as engine lubricant, uh, but it was a way to feed the masses. And actually, funny enough, you know, you talked about after World War II when they were looking for cheap ways to fatten up livestock. Uh, they tried coconut oil first, actually. And the farmers were finding that it had the exact opposite effect. It was making the pigs very lean and muscular. And, <laughs> you know, that was no good for producing the lard. That's um, so, coconut yeah, you, oil, you look like, at it, meta- boosting metabolism and has all the good saturated fats, which can help build test. Is that the mechanism there? Yeah. And then, you know, coconut oil, it doesn't oxidize. Your body knows what to do with it. Uh, that's that's kind of a key thing that distinguishes these industrial cooking fats from cooking fats found in nature. Um, if you're talking cooking fats, you know, it would be an animal fat. These tend to be saturated fats, which are the chemical structure of them make them, you know, nearly impossible to oxidize, right? It's very difficult to oxidize those fats. Yeah. Um, and then fats like, and then coconut oil is also saturated fat, one of the only non-animal uh, saturated fats. And then olive oil and avocado oil, they're like medium chain fats to where, you know, there's, there's a place for an oxygen atom to attach. They're not as, you know, which that's kind of why saturated fats don't have this oxidation problem. There's just not really anywhere for the oxygen to bind to Mm. olive oils and avocado oils and other natural fats. They have, uh, points where that can happen, but they're not really long chain, so the odds of it happening are much lower. But what you also find, you know, is when these fats are are created in nature, they tend to have uh, antioxidants and vitamins that prevent oxidation present with them. So, like a really good French olive oil uh, mm. will often have a lot of vitamin E in it. And this is actually something I've only seen it when I've been over in France and, you know, gotten some like the really good stuff uh, from places there in the South to where you could look and there were, it would test, you know, very strong vitamin E content. And what we import to America, like you don't find this anywhere on the label, uh, which, you know, the French keep the best and... <laughs> Yeah, uh, and exports. I think where I am, which is I'm also very, why, yeah, it's also very, why Austria is not known for their wine, even though they have some of the best in the world. It's just they never, they don't export the good stuff. So, 
You don't think, or do you think the domestic market is good enough that they don't need to? Yeah, yeah it's coming. I mean, they they have the, uh, you know, generally a customer base that can afford it and that will pay for it. That's the uh, yeah. that's one of the key differences you see with the true culinary cultures. Is yeah. uh, and and this is kind of my rule of thumb for you know if I'm eating out in restaurants. Um, I'll eat out at a German, uh, French or Italian restaurant before a lot of others because the, uh, the chefs there, at least if they're from those countries, they are much more likely to be, to, to take actual pride in what they're cooking. And so they're going to use the real ingredients. Um, you know, that's been my experience so far and I've, I've, it, it works out pretty well because I can I can tell right away. I mean, if I accidentally eat some of this stuff, my stomach starts like twisted up and down. <laughs> I react to it. Yeah, it's like you get a sixth sense. Like I can smell it now. You have um, even just like walking by a restaurant with vents out the back of something. It's like a distinct smell, taste that you kind of get in your throat. And I don't know really know how to explain it, uh, but I'm sure you realize the same thing. Or notice the same yeah, thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, um, I think it's, you know, in terms of the effect that it's having on the population, it is the number one health issue in the world right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what's driven this pandemic, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, that is the key thing. That, you know, there's a couple of mutations. Uh, genetic mutations that are risk factors, but really the lion's share of de- of the deaths are completely avoidable with uh, proper uh, just fat consumption. You know, I mean, you don't even have to. You can actually be someone who's like overweight in a kind of patrician uh, Berlusconi way, and you'll still yeah. be fine because you don't have these. And there's there's a specific mechanism how this happens. <clears throat> Um, COVID drives up your iron metabolism rate. I mean, they, the, uh, people who have severe cases, they have very high iron levels. Well, iron in the bloodstream is highly reactive with polyunsaturated fats. And so that'll actually cause the iron ions to rust, uh, if they react with that. And then that creates damage to the inner linings of the blood vessels, and, you know, often what really happens when people are having respiratory issues, it's not because of the lung tissue that's being affected. It's actually the damage to the inside of the capillaries around the lung and, you know, tiny blood clots and this sort of thing. And so for a long time, they treated it the exact wrong way with ventilators. And it really had nothing to do with the lungs at that point. It was just that there was inflammation inside of the blood vessels that was preventing them from doing the uh, oxygen carbon dioxide exchange there. And, you know, aside from that, uh, polyunsaturated fats also just drive your up your baseline inflammation levels, which means that, you know, when your immune system reacts to the virus, it's reacting from an already active inflammatory state to a hyper inflammatory state. And that can be enough to shut down your breathing or, uh, cause the inflammation levels that would lead to a blood clot. 
So what would you say the biggest things we have, you know, the obesity or the, the seed oils, but um, in terms of the average person things to be doing as well, it's sunlight, sleep, of course, is a massive one. Most people aren't sleeping well. They're not clearing the inflammation of their bodies throughout the night. Uh, you're not going to give, you're not going to get the best fighting chance against anything when your sleep's bad. Um, but I know you've talked about zinc, of course, being massive, uh, and a few others, right? A few others. Uh, there's a great glycine brand, uh, that just <laughs> dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. that. That'll help you with the sleep. I am a, I'm a firm believer in that. Um, and actually, I mean, I, you know, for people, if you've had COVID or getting over it or something, uh, it gives you the raw materials to repair a lot of the uh, inflammatory damage that the infection can cause. So it's That's good to recommend. That's sole glycine, everyone, yeah. if you don't know, yeah. which is run by a pretty cool dude. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know, now you know. Yeah. Uh, I would say... Yeah, sun, sleep, make sure you, uh, you know, do some form of productive exercise every day. And, you know, another thing too is, uh, I think particularly in kind of the current situation we're in, where it becomes very easy to just get locked into a routine because, you know, there's not as many options, you know, for going out or doing this or that, not, you know, the concerts aren't happening, all of this. Try to just inject some uh, some novelty in your life. You know, do something new. You know, because um, that's the that's the thing that I think really drives people, keeps them sane. Really, it's like the the utter monotony of life under lockdown. You know, it's like you're just in this big open air prison and you know, you read prison accounts and, you know, there is no good prison, right? It's the, the situation. But what what they uh, talk about repeatedly that just drives people to the edge is just, you know, everything is this predictable routine. And there's no, you know, there's no unique events, right? And so with that, your perception of time gets completely smashed. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've, I noticed this when like things were really locked down tight. It was like really hard for me to, you know, keep track of <laughs> the days in a way, you know, yeah. it was just everything blended together in one mass. And, you know, I couldn't tell you, you know, what happened in what month of last year, aside from a couple notable ones. So, you know, trying to just try new things or, you know, do something a little different, you know, maybe use your left hand. I don't know. Um, but, you know, cause I've some, a topic I've been, I've written someone and I've looked at quite a bit is like the decline of testosterone among men in the West. And it's been just a huge drop off. And, you know, looking at it like a lot of causative factors, you know, you see there's some, there's some evidence of some culprits out there. You get the, the chemical contamination with endocrine disruptors. You have people doing uh, less physical labor, 
more kind of office jobs and all this, but I think something too is just like the way that, you know, a lot of the uh, wildness of American life, things have just gotten settled down and domesticated. And I wondered, you know, it's kind of like a, a use it or lose it hormone. 100%. You know, are you gi- are you giving your balls a reason to make testosterone? Yeah. You know, are you are you putting yourself in the kind of situations where you actually need it? Right? Cuz your body's efficient. It's not going to give you anything you don't need, right? It it conforms to your demands. So, I think that's a big factor. Well, um, it's like um you can see before and after pictures of people in war or, you know, new recruits that are going out for their first tour overseas. And it's such a marked difference between the maybe young boy that went away and um, the man that comes back. It's like you get more of the, the hunter eyes, you know, your brow becomes more furrowed, stronger jaw, leaner, you know, all of these things which are marked indicators of higher testosterone and Mm -hmm. it makes sense because you're in this a stressful environment where testosterone helps your adaptability in the environment and ultimately your body responds to the environment that you curate for it so if you're in a environment where you need to be strong you need to be quick you need to be alert uh, and and able to move quickly and things like that uh, then your body is going to naturally produce the things testosterone that make you able to survive in that environment and at the moment most guys uh you know lifting weights is an outlet for that and a really good way to kind of activate that side of yourself if you train with the intensity of you know an animal and really like go to war with the weights uh in a way but now if you're sitting at a computer desk and everything's nice and you're getting cake brought to you every second day then what testosterone do you need? You could be a slug and survive in that environment. So that's obviously what's going to happen to you as well as, you know, low animal fats, being out of the sun, vitamin D being a massive precursor for testosterone production, like all of these things which are just creating a completely sick population. And a sick population is not going to make good decisions. It's not going to... You know, testosterone being low across the board means people are more agreeable and they don't, you know, they don't make the hard decisions because they don't want to upset people. And that at scale uh, in government is just a recipe for a declining society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it, uh, sets you up to become a country of slaves. Yeah. Uh, Eunuch slaves. (laughs) Which that, I mean, that's that's exactly what uh, yeah. if you look at you know military history, right? Some of the Han armies, they would ha- there would be these slave armies, and one of the common denominators would be uh, castration, because it would make them just kind of docile and easy to manage. Do you think that that's what's causing everyone's kind of just meek acceptance of uh, the lockdown bullshit? Uh, I, I think so. I mean, I think it is a, it is a pretty vicious feedback loop because it's like, yeah, that might cause people to accept it or maybe people accept it and then it causes the levels to drop even more. Mm. Right. It's kind of like the, uh, the principle of, 
you know, if you lose a fight, you're more likely to lose the next fight. But if you win a fight, you're more likely to win the next one after that. And, you know, Jordan Peterson used kind of the famous example of the lobsters. You know, when they have a fight, the losers, uh, part of his brain dissolves and rebuilds itself as a subordinate lobster. So its brain just physically adjusts to his new spot on the hierarchy. Shit. Do you think that happens with us as well? I think, oh, it's it's been observed. I mean, it's, you know, you look at uh, you look at guys like Tom Brady, right? They're, mm. they're used to winning. They get on a roll, and then that just com- kind of becomes second nature. Um, and I mean, these patterns have been seen throughout, you know, a lot of human competition. It's pretty well studied. I mean, it's, it's pretty... Uh, pretty universal kind of across the animal kingdom of yeah of this and this is this is how natural hierarchies are formed um so i I think it definitely happens to us and it's you know i I try to stay conscious of this when it comes to goal setting you know you want to set up goals that uh that challenge you that are driving you to grow, but you also don't want to set up ones that, uh, where you're setting yourself up for failure. And then that will have, you know, a strong negative impact on you. Mm. Uh, so I, you know, what's helpful with that is you plot your short, medium and long term, and then you break those up into kind of sub goals. Right. Yeah. So, and if you're breaking them up kind of into sub goals, even if the whole thing doesn't quite go off the way you envisioned it, or you know you have a dud or something, at least you have wins within that project, right? Yeah. There's still things you can point to. And, the long-term goals, you know, almost I think should be more general. Like it's pretty much impossible to say, you know, in two years I want to have a six K a six figure revenue in my side business or something like that. And it's good. And the visualization of those long-term goals, like the higher you make the goal, the more you obviously are driven to achieve, the more you have to do and work for that. So it's a tricky one because you don't want to limit yourself. If you say, you know, I want to make $10,000 for my side business next year. Because then you will be operating from a place of how do I get to 10K instead of 100K. And then maybe you get to 80K in that year because you're not limited and you're like, you know, you're going the extra mile and looking for more uh, bigger deals or whatever or doing more sales. So you're not going to get to the six figures, but you'll land at 80K, which is better than 10K. And yes, 10K might have been more achievable, but. You know, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. It's, it's, it's more the principle of like, have your long-term vision of life and what you need to do each day to get there. If you complete the day well over the years, it'll all come together. And the, the, the visuals of the long-term goals, they can kind of be shoot for the stars, you'll land on the moon kind of scenario. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, when you bring up with that, I mean, I think that's a good uh, good example because, you know, with that, if you're saying, okay, 10 grand, well, you're putting a number on it. And a lot is going to depend on variables that you can't predict, right? 
yeah. you can maybe gauge to some extent how hot you think something will be, but things will surprise you, right? Uh, movies that tested very well with test audiences absolutely flopped at the box office. Whereas some that studios didn't think were going to go anywhere, they became cult phenomenons and are still making yeah. money for the creators. So there's a there's going to be unpredictability baked in. So you have to find something else instead of picking the number. Just come up with something like I'm going to make a movie that I'm really proud of. Yeah. There you go. There you have something that can be achievable. You know, because that's that's somewhat under yeah. your control. Yeah, and and you can uh, you can predict that you know that's because it's internal and it's like okay well this is something I'm capable of, but you know some things are just going to be out of your hands and I think uh, if you set your heart on that a little too much then you know you're just you're setting yourself up to uh, ultimately get into a kind of defeated mindset. And then, you know, what are you going to do from there? Yeah, I think um, all of these things kind of, again, it's almost related to the low T situation with everyone. You know, if, if you're a high testosterone man, you're going to be more driven, more passionate, have more energy to achieve your goals and things like that. Um, that's why I always talk about, you know, if you want to be better in life, get your health better, you know get out in nature more because you're going to have less stress, your body's going to feel better, you're going to have more energy, and then you start to be able to have the capacity to work a few hours after your day job on whatever else it is, or study, or you know, and, physically work and you're out. And you're, you're giving your body a reason to make this stuff, right? It's like if you just try to go straight for the TRT, what happens when people do that without, if you just inject pure testosterone? Yeah. The body's natural production of testosterone will stop. Yeah. Or slow down to compensate for that, right? So it's like you're not going to trick your body the easy way. You've got to you've got to put in a level of work and tell it, "No, no, I need all this." Yeah, I I mean, I haven't obviously uh done testosterone um, maybe down the line when I'm like 40 or 50. Uh, but I think it is a, it's almost a go-to. Well, I like, I like my now. hair too much to try it, but I'm just, <laughs> I've, I've looked <laughs> into the things, you know, I mean, look, look, if you've, if you've never researched steroids, I'm going to call you a liar right now because we all do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, all just like, well, what, what if the vaccine was trend though, right? <laughs> I think you would have a better success rate. <laughs> well actually uh i think we had a question on that uh from the tweet you put out about avoiding vaccines i i think you know you could you could actually have a very fun time avoiding you know any mandatory vaccine if you don't want it uh you know do the trend injection but you know take a picture of it for social media so everybody will think you've been vaccinated. And then I think I think there's these templates already online. Uh, otherwise, you can make one with Photoshop. But it's like the cards that they hand out to the people in line. It's these little, yeah. just these old janky cardboard things that they like write something down on. Well, so many people have posted this stuff on social media yeah. that you can get those and see like what it looks like. And you can like even yeah. write down like an accurate lot number or whatever. Yeah. So. 
there you go to the guy who asked that. I've solved your problems. Venmo me $300. Thank you very much. True. I mean, I would never advise people to do anything illegal, of course, if there are any three-letter agencies listening. Uh, (laughs) Well, they haven't got around to making (laughs) laws about it yet. Honestly, you know, there are no laws on the book that say that you can't. can't, This is is the brilliant thing about being on the cutting edge. Uh, It's also why the internet has flourished, right? Because, like, the government has taken so long to figure out like the regulations in this and that. So for a very long time, it was just a total wild west. And, you know, you see that, uh, just about everything. There's a lag time, but yes, for, for three letter agencies, don't go after soul. Come after me. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think I'm just, yeah. I mean, it's, there's nothing illegal about refusing to, refusing a mandatory vaccine and, and people go, oh, it's not mandatory, bro. You just can't go to the shops. Your kids can't go to school. You can't go to work if you don't have it. But it's not mandatory. Like that kind of lizard-like fucking doublespeak is so yeah annoying to me. Let's just say that. Uh, because everyone knows like... That's deceptive. I mean, it's it's constant. I mean, these people just lie yeah. constantly, always gaslighting you. It's, yeah. No, no, there was no... There were no violent protests. They said, you know, it's like, well, we have footage of a mostly peaceful protest and there's like a building burning in the background. You know, yeah. it is... It's blatant. It's blatant and it's, it's like... It's blatant. It's straight we're, gaslighting. We're all like victims of abuse, honestly. We are all victims of abuse. <laughs> Genuinely. And everyone's demoralized because of it. And now no one can fucking trust anything they see on the internet or their reasoning faculties are just so overwhelmed that they can't look at something objectively and go, hmm, what's really going on? It's just like whatever's repeated the most becomes uh, the common correct truth. And our attention yeah, I mean, spans as well it's, is it's just been very... so fucked from... Story, story, It's been story, very demoralizing down. just to watch this. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just our attention spans from social media and all the rest of it is like, new story, new story. I mean, yesterday, another shooting has, has popped up, which is very coincidental. And now it's, it's back to white supremacy because the shooter was white. Um, and that's now whatever was happening before the Gavin Newsom stuff, uh, where he killed thousands of people. First, it was divert to a the sexual assaults, allegedly, and now, boom, shooting. And that's well, all just the I mean, just on this topic, they've been setting up the narrative for months now about mm-hmm. white supremacy driving these anti Asian attacks, and like, yeah, anti Asian attacks have gone up. It's a very bad thing. Attacks in general have gone up. Like the yeah. murder rate in just about every major U.S. city outside of Florida has skyrocketed. Yeah. You know, all kinds of violent crime. But up until this point, all the individual cases they had to look to, it was all black men carrying out attacks. I mean, I'm just going to call a spade a spade. That's what has been happening. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know if this is the demographic that was like listening to Donald Trump 
and being like, oh, wow, suddenly, you know, I hate Asian people, right? And it, it was also, I mean, yeah. the idea that, you know, saying the virus came from China and calling it the virus, China virus, that this would lead to, like, mass, you know, hatred of, like, all Asians. I'm like, there's a lot of people who are not Chinese yeah. <laughs> uh, that are Asian, too. So, like... <laughs> This is uh this is a weird conflation, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. By saying that the Chinese Communist Party can't keep a lid on their own uh, laboratories and these things either escape or they're you know doing gain of function testing and they might be engineered. There's all this weird stuff going on with the genome. Saying that that you know is suddenly going to mean that you know I want to run down and like hit Mrs. Lee at the grocery store you know, with a bat or something. It's psychotic, dude. It's, it's yeah. like... Well, they you know, act racist <laughs> while calling you racist. And that's always yeah. been the case. And, it, I mean, the way that they call you racist is actually pretty racist because it's just <laughs> like, you know... Somebody was... I saw one tweet today that was somebody uh, talking about how they wanted to, like, crisper edit the whiteness out of themselves. You know, like, what is this? This is just... It's self-hatred. Yeah, it, it's complete delusional self-hatred. But it, it's just, it's so amplified and it's so performative. You know, and I'm like, are you really this awkward when you're, like, talking to, you know, people of other races that you, like, feel this need to do this self-flagellation? Because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked to black friends about this. They think it's just weird. You know, it's like, you can't even talk to white people now. You know? it's like, yeah. Because <laughs> they just act awkward and like, oh, you know, like, we accept you like you are. You know, it's like, why do you even have to bring these things exactly. up? We weren't thinking exactly. about it. You know, it's Just like, treat every person like a person and don't give them any special privileges because of their color of their skin. Or backgrounds, but and then also don't you know count them out. I have uh, to disagree with that. I give special privileges to the Latino ladies. Are y'all <laughs> listening? Hola. Yes, open borders for hotties in America, right? Buenas noches. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if my uh, Latino lady population listeners uh, hit up Ben. He uh, he'll he'll sort you out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, that's one of the other things about all these restrictions that have had me going crazy. I haven't been able to go to South America, and I'm losing my mind. Because, you know, I mean, it... I was. Yes. I haven't been able to go to South America through all this, and it's making me lose my mind. Yeah. Was that a, um, a regular trip for you? Oh, yeah, a couple times a year to a couple of the uh, favorite spots. Where do you like? At, le- at least a, cu- a couple would actually be kind of uh, a slowly... I mean, that would be a bad year. That would be when I was <laughs> with a lot of stuff. It was a couple years in my 20s where uh, I was there more than here. So, um, I like Brazil. I like uh, Colombia. I like Mexico. Uh, there's a couple others, but those are more kind of one-off tourist spots. The three I mentioned, I did, uh, you know, I mean, I've got uh, a lot of friends in those places, and I don't know, it feels kind of like a uh, second home. 
so yeah it's a it's a beautiful place and um it has i think what draws people to it it has that air of wildness still uh, in a lot of places and yes that comes with a bit of danger as well uh but almost like a oh i know of... i've had a gun put to my head in rio Okay, 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, getting into an Uber and this like dude rolls up on a motorcycle and sticks a gun against my head. The fact that it actually touched me, that was the one thing I like, like I, I can still, uh, I can still feel the steel almost that kind of thing. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was interesting though. It was, it was, I was really calm. Um, something, whenever these kind of situations happen. I actually just find myself in a kind of uh, zen mode, and then it hits me afterwards, like, oh, wow, you uh, <laughs> could have had a bat in your head. Um, and what was, what was interesting about this, uh, this mugging, he only got my phone, which is kind of funny because I had, like, my computer, my wallet, all this stuff in my backpack, which was in my hands, uh, you know, it would have been a lot more valuable to him. But uh, the notable thing about this mugging, because uh, it's it, it hasn't been like the only time I've been mugged down there, but it was the only time with the gun. But um, they actually caught this guy, which is very rare. Um, I think it was because I had a Google Pixel and he like couldn't figure out totally how to shut it off. So it was on, you know, normally like when they get an iPhone or something, they shut it off immediately right so you can't yeah really do the tracking so it was on so i had a perfect map into the favela where he was staying at <laughs> i go down the i go down to the police station get my laptop out and like you know this is where he is all this and uh and bolsonaro had uh gotten inaugurated like a week before and he had like declared open season on crime so it was like these, you know, these police had spent 16 years under, you know, basically communist government that forced them to give uh, criminals a very wide pass. And so now that, you know, now they're in the throes of hunting season and they're all, you know, happy as heck to uh, <laughs> pursue this guy. So... They got him. I ended up having to do like this weird Zoom deposition testimony thing uh, because he had broken out of prison and he had killed two people in the span of like the week before he uh, mugged me. And, you know, I was pretty chill about the whole thing, like up until the po point that where I found out that he was actually killing people. Because <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't even sure if the gun was real. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. this ugly oh, chrome shit. 1911. Like, I was like, I, you know, I don't know if this is a proper <laughs> There's that. And I was like, well, this is uh, so something. But it's it's part of, you know, that's part of the the fun, though. You know, there's this, uh, there's this tension in the atmosphere. And it's not for everybody, but it's, uh, you know, people there, they, they don't exist in this kind of lukewarm space as in a lot of first world countries where they're not really hot towards you or not really cold towards you down there. It's like they either want to kill you or sleep with you. And <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how the, 
you know, the ground level police, that can all be influenced by the culture of the top government. And I guess that's what's kind of happening in the opposite direction in America at the moment is you're seeing, you know, rioters on the left, literally like across ideological lines. If you are aligned on the left, you can riot, burn down shit and federal charges would be dropped. But if you are walked peacefully in the in the capital, then you know you're being hunted on social media. Um, literally, government agencies asking for people to turn their fucking friends and family in, and that's happening right now in America. And people, yeah. people are still as, like as oh, well as a purge no of the communist. military. What's that? As well as a purge of the military. I mean, they're carrying out like yeah. these. Uh, these extremism stand downs so where every military unit's basically getting a talking to about how you know evil the capital riot was and you know the threat and all and you know they've had these uh i've talked to people who've been in these kind of briefings or struggle sessions that the military's having and there's no mention of uh the times where you know actual uh cases of extremism in the military have resulted in attacks on in military bases on U.S. soil. You know, like the Fort Hood shooting. You had a guy in the army, he was, uh, he became radicalized. Um, you know, it was a Orthodox Muslim and went over to the other side and, uh, you know, went to work one day and, you know, started killing people right on a base in Texas that's extremism. Um, and that's extremism that killed, you know, service members, but they're not talking about any of this stuff and they're not saying, you know, be on the lookout for this kind of thing. They're specifically tailoring it to, you know, uh, this idea that there's some, you know, plot by white men to, you know, rise up and I don't even know what they think we're going to do. <laughs> Why it's do you like, think it's happening? Where is it coming from, like, top-down-wise? Is it the universities, well, th- like, that's the basis of it? Yeah, actually, I think it's actually coming from the politicians because I think it's driven by a paranoia that the elements of the military that are patriotic could, at some point, mount a military coup. And I think they're trying to preempt anything like that by carrying out a full purge of the military, even if... Even if we're talking about purging out, just based on suspicions, not on actual stuff, but it's on suspicion. Um, you know, top operational, you know, officers, commandos, uh, some of our most capable guys, right? So they'll do something that actually affects the military's capabilities if they think that it's going to make uh, them marginally safer from a military coup. And, you know, the whole concept is... Uh, is pretty absurd because, you know, the closest thing we got to a coup was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know they never even got beyond discussing it with a couple of generals, and it's doubtful that any soldiers would have uh, or many soldiers would have participated. So, you know, America doesn't have a history of uh, military coups, unfortunately. So it's one of the other reasons I love South America, um, but I think that. <clears throat> The, the purge and, you know, this just neurotic fixation on this, uh, 
specifically directed at the military. I think it's just driven by fear on their part, and they're they've become completely paranoid. I mean, they you know they talk about uh, QAnon being you know crazy conspiracy theories. At least there's a lot of stuff in the uh, in the regular headlines that would kind of support the base assumptions of QAnon, right? Like it's no secret that uh, you know a huge portion of the elite are psychotic pedophiles and this and that that's not a conspiracy that's reality the conspiracy that there was a that the military was capable of stopping it um but they have their own conspiracy theories which you know are things that uh you know like russia um installed trump as president and democratic voters actually believe that it wasn't just through information ops which is kind of what the smarter ones have alleged like oh well they were like russian trolls and they like sowed confusion and this made people vote for trump no the democratic voters actually believe that the russians physically went into the voting machines and hacked them now if we after this past election which had a crazy amount of just complete abnormalities, right? 2016 was a fairly routine election, right? The bellwether counties went for Trump. All of these normal things that happen in politics, you know, all the signs pointed. There was nothing, there was no smoking gun that, you know, made anyone even suspect voting fraud, except in some states there was some where you had these uh, more individual cases where, Democratic organizers were signing up illegal aliens to vote. And so you had a, you actually did have some election fraud on the Hillary side, but it just wasn't enough. But, you know, there's there's just not really any evidence of any coming from Trump or the Russians or this or that. But people repeat this stuff and they believe it. And it's it's like they're totally casual about it. Right. No one no one is being asked to denounce this. Right. No one's telling Nancy Pelosi, well, why will you why won't you just, you know, come out and refute the big lie? Right. This is like undermining people's trust in democracy. But then when we have a crazy election like this past one where you have a crazy amount of anomalies and just alarm bells going off everywhere, it just doesn't look right. Right. You have like Trump winning all night and then suddenly they stop counting the ballots. You know, vote counters went home. And then four hours go by, people go to bed, and they wake up, and then suddenly, like, we're discovering just... That yeah. alone, that alone is yeah. just bullshit. That alone. Straight up. <laughs> yeah. I, I could go for days, because I, I got, like, arm deep in this stuff, but... Yeah. You know, and... So, for us, to, like, we can't even have a discussion about it, right? If I started to... If I broached this topic on any national channel, including, like not just Fox News, but like the ultra-conservative ones like uh, Newsmax, they would interrupt me and start reading a legal statement about how the election was fair. Like, we're living in a complete just Soviet, (laughs) you know, totalitarian clown state. I mean, it's it's actually not even that good, right? At least the Soviets had like... uh, you know, a cult of physical fitness and some of these things. And, you know, yeah. kind of more, it at least had like the aesthetics of tyranny, right? If I'm going to live in a 
tyrannical country like this. I want there to be some like brutalist buildings, some military parades. I, I want them to be like, really <laughs> open about it. Matching uniforms. It's that it's that you have to pretend that everything is normal while things are free. completely insane. Yeah, and if you don't act like everything is completely normal and you know just isn't like it's always been in America, then suddenly like people start to think you're you know a bit loony or extreme or they might call the FBI saying that they suspect you're about to you know carry out the next Oklahoma City or something it's 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 a crazy unreal uh environment and people don't realize it's like i remember having a conversation like this like what do you mean there's this communist ideology or you know soaking into everything that we're doing um and then it turns out they'd never read a history book talking about this stuff and that seems to be the case is that you know everything's hunky-dory people never branch out or they never there's never this the pressure to just learn something about these past societies and when you see the past societies take away freedom of speech it's the same demoralization tactics that um, you know the soviets used all these things which you can clearly pattern match to what's happening now, you know, we've all just lost a year of our lives to the same kind of, like, do you think the lockdowns would have been able to have gone on, uh, let's say, 60 years ago? Probably not, right? Or no, maybe that's even I mean, too recent. I don't even think the lockdowns could have been carried out in the, in the 1990s. I mean... You know, yeah. the AIDS crisis was a pretty big one, and there was nothing like that. I mean, they were barely even able to shut down the bathhouses in San Francisco, right? Just, like, yeah. the individual places where the spread was happening. So, yeah, it, I don't think it would be possible without uh, without this kind of advanced uh, digital world we're in it either, Right. Because now communication is instantaneous. You can carry out this stuff fairly quickly, you know. And and it's also, the, the other thing too is like without social media, you wouldn't be able to like socially shame people, right? For, you know, taking a trip that's 100% legal, but is not, you know, maybe advised by the CDC, right? And so they're going to like put you on some Instagram page where you're then going to be harassed by people and then people on the internet will call your job, this and that. Before social media, there was this kind of like layer of anonymity, right? You could actually go while out at the Capitol and your bitter ex-girlfriend wouldn't pour through the footage, see you and call the FBI and say you're a terrorist. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, we were so worried about surveillance in the form of CCTV cameras and like government interception of stuff, right? Like back in the, you know, around 2010 or so. But then we created a hyper surveillance state, totally voluntary. Do you think it was voluntary? You know. Well, I mean, people, you know, people get the ring doorbells. Right, yeah. which have like a camera view of outside the house, and they put in the cameras inside the house, and all of this stuff. And I mean, we we carry around the camera phones. And Give it to Amazon. No worries, yeah, Google. Take, you know, <laughs> it's like okay, well, I'm, 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 
we're all Stasi agents now, right? I'm going to take a picture of this and I'm going to upload it where anyone in the world can immediately access it. It's this giant decentralized, uh, you know, surveillance regime. It's it's not it's not all coming from the government, but I mean the government was involved in a lot of the original uh, research and funding of a lot of these pro- projects, including just about all of the uh, you know private messaging apps like WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal and even others. You know, like. A lot of these were started with grants from uh, DOD or had, you know, such people involved in this and that. And there's, there's back doors for the security agencies, of course, but, um, you know, even some of their funding and some background things they did on some of the social media um, platforms. And then you see just like this coordinated effort to stop the social media platforms that, uh, you know, don't have the special permission of the establishment to start up, right? You can't download Parler from the App Store. Uh, For some reason, I mean, what was it? They had extreme content, you know, and ISIS was using Facebook and uh, Twitter to release beheading videos and recruit people, you know, like... That's the other bizarre thing to me is like, do you know how much horrific stuff has been facilitated by the big tech platforms? And then now they're like, well, Parler, you know, and Gab, like they allow people to, you know, say mean things about some group. And so like, we can't, we can't let that content, you know, we, we have to deplatform them, but we can't deplatform ISIS, right? Who actually, yeah, establish, thanks to social media, is able to establish a caliphate and just you know commit some of the most heinous atrocities and all of this stuff. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, well, it's it's about you know furthering their agenda and increasing and consolidating their power while reducing their ideological oppositions. And if that's the prime objective, then, you know, you're going to lie. You're going to, well, you know, in their worldview, they're going to lie. They're going to strong arm you. They're going to have double standards. They're going to, you know, let their guys off and protect their guys while prosecuting other guys. And the left is doing that. The right is trying to prove that they're not doing that. And so they're playing by the rules that the other team is not adhering by. And in any situation like that, the side that's playing by the rules is going to lose. And that's not to say that you have to lie and cheat and do all those things. It's just to say, to realize that that's what's happening on one side. You can't play by the same, you know, oh, I'm innocent. Um, Oh, but look at the double standards here. Why are you guys doing that? That's all conservatives do, it seems, is saying, oh, that's bad. Why are you doing that? Look, we're not doing that. You said that's bad, but you're doing it. And it's just this lame recursive bullshit that's like trying to pull out double standards or point out double standards to some arbiter, which is usually, you know, the courts that are leftist controlled or whatever else. Yeah, which which is why I think the thing is not even to, you know, we definitely can't win playing by the rules, but then we also get penalized for breaking the rules. 
I think to some extent, we just have to play a completely different game. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see, uh, I see actually a lot of, uh, a lot of positive sides on our sides, like a kind of flourishing or even can say like a, a renaissance, right? I mean, there's a lot of people, uh, in our corner of the internet that are doing a lot of cool things. Um, you got Raw Ag Nationalist has put out a, a men's journal, which is probably the first, uh, men's magazine that I've looked at <laughs> contemporarily since, uh, Oh man, it's been a while since I've been able to handle like men's health and men's journal or anything uh, after they went woke. Uh, actually, I finally got around to watch him the other day. Uh, Vinny is, is doing his thing, the Dolce Base Files, where he's uh, he's going it's to cool, like, hey. these, yeah, cool old military sites and that kind of stuff and checking out. He's got like a very... Uh, Alex Jones 1990s vibe to it, but kind of cooler. Um, you know, you've got a lot of a lot of great writing coming out. Um, just interesting projects all around. I mean, like like what you've done with the the glycine and like a lot of your projects. Uh, just interesting, innovative stuff that you uh, want. I think we have to build our own institutions. You know, we're we're totally locked out of the dominant ones and you, you got to build ahead. another game if the game's rigged against you yeah. then you say you okay game. That, that's game that you can go play we're going to build our own game that has you know better rules and has better incentives for us and something outside of the typical structure of get a job go to college get indoctrinated go work for a tech company uh do what you're told sit down shut up and you know you're only allowed money if the overlords deem you worthy and we're going to take it away if you think something outside of you know our corporate um agenda uh you know like have all the big banks coming out in support of these things and it's like since when did we become a society i guess it's been that way for a while where we give a fuck about what the banks are saying what are the morals of fucking chase bank and i'm going to be lectured to about uh, racism or whatever it is by a bank. Like, what's happening here? There's a complete conflation of corporate interests and moral superiority, and it's being used to. You got to think, why is a bank doing that? Because, in some form, that is making it richer. It's getting more profits for the company. And so, that whole system, if that's the case, that whole system is just rotten from the core. And I think everyone knows that now. And that's why we have to do things out of the box. And this is why they want you dependent on them for income and things so they can control you through these means. And if you go into their system, but still have an, a sense of self-worth and independence, then you can't flourish inside of that weird dependence yeah. model bullshit. And, you know, for a long time, they've, they've controlled the uh they've controlled money itself you know just like one of these most basic elements of commercial civilization and you know they've routinely depreciated the value of the dollar and when you have inflation it doesn't happen evenly across the society it transfers some from you know you have losers you have winners and the way the federal reserve system works 
the uh, private cartel of banks that make up the Federal, Federal Reserve banking system, right? They're the first ones that get their hands on the newly printed money. They're closest to the spigot. And so they're actually siphoning off a fair amount. So what you have what you have happen is you have a redistribution of wealth built into the monetary system from all the normal working people of the country towards the financial system. And, you know, that's been one of just the, I think since the introduction of that, that was when the beginning of the end began, right? We've just been in a slow motion train wreck since, uh, since we went off of the gold standard. That was, that was, there's a specific moment. Was it was it with JFK or what's well, his name? There was a couple. There was a couple of times because they they kind of they manipulated the gold standard a bit. So we were we were on a full gold standard up until 1932, and FDR took us off. Then we suspended it, I believe, during World War II, but then reinstated it. But we came up with the Bretton Woods Agreement, where we yep. had, where we made the gold backed, so it wasn't. You know, it wasn't like a full gold standard, but there was a gold window where you could still convert dollars to gold. So, you know, it was a workable gold standard, but making the dollar the reserve currency of the world. And then with Vietnam and some other things that were going on, we uh, largely the oil crisis, right? The uh, Arab oil embargo began after the U.S., uh, gave weapons to Israel for the first time uh, during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, I believe that was in 1971. So they transferred this military equipment there. They had uh, been hit with a surprise attack, so they called for aid. Typically, the the U.S. had only uh, given, you know, there were some purely defensive missiles transferred under the Kennedy administration, but normally there was kind of a hands-off policy, right? We're not going to get involved one way or another with Israel and the Arabs because we want to have good relations with both. Well, Nixon, um, when he had transferred weapons because they got hit in this surprise attack and the country was going to be overrun. And so in retaliation, the Arab countries, they put in place the, uh, you know, like oil embargoes, this kind of thing. They they created a uh, an artificial scarcity of oil, which had the effect of causing shortages here, but at the same time, like with some of the soaring prices. Um, well, actually, the soaring prices happened first, and that then started transferring a lot of gold out of Fort Knox to a lot of these Arab countries. And then because of the prices, they institute the price controls. And then, of course, when you have price controls, you get a shortage. And so we had a full mess from that. Anyway, we closed the gold window to stop it during this crisis. And we went to just a fully fiat currency. And since then, you know, the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar has just, it's fallen off the cliff. Um, And it was was relatively stable. Yeah, it's it, it blows I mean, my mind how people could, don't see it. You could the go to college for on. yeah, my dad's generation. You could go, you know, you could pay for college for five hundred a semester, 
$500. And I'm, yeah. I don't think you guys have the same crazy tuition as we have over here now in Australia, but, you know, it's at least 20 times that much now just for a normal state school. So, you know, I mean, gro- I've seen visible grocery inflation maybe up to 30% just in the past year, you know. Um, yeah. Because I... You know, I, I kind of stick to my staples, and so I have a pretty good sense of what things normally cost, and it's just, it's steadily rose over the past year. What um, do you eat usually, day-to-day basis? What's the Ben Braddock approved? Um, I usually st- I usually start the day off with a uh, raw egg shake or two. Um, nice. Sometimes if I'm... Uh, if I'm feeling a bit cheeky, I will make blueberry pancakes, throw mm. in some sourdough starter. Um, that can be very nice. Um, and then, I don't know, like, you know, like a lot of cheese, cottage cheese, raw milk, steak. Um, during the week, I, you know, I, I'm pretty simple because I don't like to go through so much of the full dinner routine so i'll just like throw a steak on the grill and call it a night but uh and then usually uh post-workout i demolish about a pint of haagen usually chocolate peanut butter or just the chocolate chocolate uh currently in a bulk i'm not saying to do that all the time but uh <laughs> yeah that's about it and then you know Weekends when I have more time to plan, I'll delve into some, uh, you know, new recipes or some old favorites. Uh, big on the European stews, like beef bourguignon, these types of things. Yeah, uh, you know, good clam chowder, a lot of, a lot of traditional stuff. What? Well, yeah. Well, that's uh, an important point uh, that I wanted to. Well, one of the Twitter questions was. Um, wanted to talk about ancestral eating and that can mean I think a couple things first one being you know everyone's genetics are different we know this we know that where your you know background is from your racial background that over the years your body or your family would have adopted to certain local foods and we have a better time digesting and just processing and you know being making use of the food that is more closely in line with your ancestral kind of background so if you're european you can handle more fats uh compared to someone from africa like they seem to do better with a higher vegetable or carbohydrate content and i think a lot of people um well everyone's food's fucked up to begin with if they're eating processed food but but you can feel like one person's macro split might work for them and then someone else might do better with a different macro split. So I think it's, it's very important. And, um, you know, Paul Check talks about this, uh, calls them polar types and you can be one of three kind of main classes. Uh, and he has a quiz you can look at to see what your body kind of responds best with. And this can mean like, do you feel tired if you have a lot of carbs or do you feel good and do you usually feel the need to eat something before bed? Like all these things which are to do with your metabolism is your ancestral profile uh, and maybe 
as well as like people's genes like some people like ben greenfield he, he ate green beans for a while and that gives particularly for him massive things of inflation uh inflammation so i think like one size fits all diet is you know whole food of course all the time organic but it does play with a bit of experimentation in terms of your ancestral background i'm wondering your thoughts on this oh, i agree completely i mean some people do very well on full carnivore and you know some people they'll feel low energy and crappy on it and they need the fruits and vegetables added in and some other things too so um i think it's influenced by a lot and you know if you're so it's interesting in my family um come from a fairly large one so some of my brothers sisters will like take exactly after my mom's side and then uh others like me and a couple of my brothers we take directly after my dad's side and it's uh it's almost like those same uh ancestral eating patterns like work for us based off of like which line of the uh ancestry we come out of right Mm. So, my mom's side, they can handle, like, uh, you know, a higher carb load without issues. Um, and I'm guessing because there's, there's just, like, a lot of Irish and German. Um, so, some of the starches and things, they do better digesting. And then my dad's side. Um, so, this kind of counts for me. We do best on mostly, like milk meat and cheese <laughs> and it's like we get to lick a prune once every two weeks so <laughs> like i you know if i'm going to do carbs i have to do them just like right after workout when i've completely depleted my glycogen yeah. and it's time to recharge because if i do it outside of, i feel terrible you know uh and so it's like if i'm going to eat pancakes in the morning i have to get up extra early and go like work my butt off at the gym so I'm just completely drained of any kind of glycogen before I <laughs> go back and eat those. Otherwise, I will feel sick. I'll just like uh, I'll feel nauseous and like I'm, you know yeah, die or something. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm pretty good. Like, I think I had a kilo of potatoes last night and that just seems to work well for me. Uh, but I think it was also like the energetic needs of the body, like I'm lifting heavy weights you know, every second day at the least uh, and doing some sort of so, some form of exercise um, but the other thing about ancestral eating that I think we've moved away from too much is uh, eating nose to tail which is the principle that you know you eat every part of the animal that you are consuming or that you've hunted back in the day right. and not letting any of it go to waste and now unfortunately we're only eating muscle meat and most people if they're not kind of red-pilled on this uh, issue they'll have only muscle meat and they'll cut the fat off their steaks and throw the fat in the bin which is arguably you know what the more important bit um, than the than the muscle meat of the steak so no satellite eating means eating the eyeballs the brain the tongue uh, the thyroid, the lungs, the intestines, the liver, all of these great beneficial parts of the body that 
what do we do with those now? We, we sell the steak and the rest gets grinded up into sausages, which is good if you get good quality sausages because it's a nice palatable way to have organ meats and the other bits and bobs that we kind of think is gross in Western society. But it's all, you know, a lot of nutrition that we're missing there. And also things like collagen uh, from the connective tissue. And this is the other one of the other things, not to plug the glycine again, but glycine helps you with the because glycine is in collagen, in all those connective tissues that we are not eating, uh, if you're getting only muscle meat, you're, it's a buildup of methanion, and there's a methanion-glycine ratio in the body. And if that's fucked up, exactly. uh, then that can cause issues. So taking glycine kind of works against that a little bit, but you should be having things, you know, bone broth is a really easy one to incorporate into your diet uh, that I recommend getting all the good nutrition out of, out of bones. Uh, but you, we have to be eating the whole body of the animal, and if we're not, we're missing out on a lot. Yeah, I do a I do a lot of the glycine because uh, I'm I'm eating a ton of raw eggs, so I've got to balance the methionine out that way. Uh, but also, fan of bone broth uh, for the organ meats. I actually I gravitate most towards the heart. Um, to mm. me, that's the tastiest and the most simple. I can just like whip up on a grill. <clears throat> it's good, uh, good beef for deer heart. Uh, fortunately, had a good hunting season last year, so got stocked up pretty well. But it it was funny. Uh, by the time I got to my I guess fourth one, I was giving away the muscle meat and just keeping the organs because yeah, <laughs> I had like more than enough muscle meat left over. But I like wanted as much heart and liver as I could get. Uh, I, I'll admit, though, I, I take the Ancestral Supplements beef brain uh, capsules because I have not, that's the one thing I have not <laughs> been able to, I've, I've been able to eat, like, all the other bits. And yeah. I, I think I was, I think it was because when I was a kid, I uh, saw Silence of the Lambs and I got, like, kind of traumatized <laughs> by, you know, Anthony Hopkins eating some dude's brain and I just, yeah the texture, it's just, it's a, but... But yeah, I, I, I support those who do, though. I, I, yeah, it's impressive. And I, have you heard of, um, what's it called? High meat? Uh, that's where it's been re- basically rotted, right? Raw and so, fermented liver stuck in a jar for like weeks. And then you eat okay. that. <laughs> so the closest I will get to that is what we call old ham. Which is where we'll take a ham off a pig, <laughs> rub it in salt, and then like hang it in the basement for a year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need Sick. to go that long, but I've, yeah. I've had one. Uh, I've had one that was uh, a guy in our church. He had cured. Uh, he had it hanging for five years. Uh, that was some very potent stuff. But uh, What does it taste like? It's... Uh, it's pretty salty. It's like an intense flavor. The it's like a very uh, red color. Uh, I don't. It, it's hard to describe, but uh, yeah. it's really good. But it's it's ancestral as far as you know. Like my family has eaten this and prepared this. You know, has done like home curing from. Uh, like my dad would actually he would, you know just throw a couple hogs out in the uh we had horses but he like made a little space where you could put some pigs he would just throw some hogs out there 
so that there'd be hams to do every year. And, you know, we didn't know that this was like the prime, you know, organic, great quality mm. stuff. It was just because it was expensive to buy it at the store. So yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. we'd raise our own. Uh, so what's, what's, the, what's happening there with like, why is that fermentation good for us? And why does the high meat, you know, I'm sure I think some people get sick, like, it's just a shock to the system when they first have it. But what, what makes that good and that, those probiotics and fermentation and bacteria good, but then you couldn't I, eat I something think, that's like gone off after a few days? It's, it's the process in which it's done. Um, I mean, the, the salt really kills a lot of the bad pathogens um, yeah. that you would want to avoid. And there's, um, there's really anything in general. So it's in a lot of that, what, you know, what it's rubbed in, right? So it's not, um, it's not really in contact with air because it's encrusted in salt. Yeah. And so like one of the things, you know, if you're going to do, uh, beef tartare, which I'm a fan of, but I only, you know, I only use very high quality grass fed beef from a, a local farmer here. I would never do this with a grocery store meat. I wouldn't eat that raw. Yeah. But still, um, you know, after you've like, say you have like a nice Wagyu roast, you still want to cut a thin slice off of the outside layer, just all the parts mm. that have been in contact with the air since this was first cut, because yeah. that's where your, you know, nasty bacteria is going to hang out on. And then the inner part that's not in contact with the air, this actually stays, uh, pretty safe and you can, uh, you can enjoy it raw. So that's kind of the same principle as why you would, you know, first soak this in a brine to get the salt to penetrate inside the meat. And then you would dry hang it, but it would be completely encrusted in salt. And then with like a kind of cheesecloth netting over it to hold that in tight. So mm. it's still preserved, uh, pretty airtight. I, I'm agnostic on high meat. I'll, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's not something you really run across a lot of places and, you know, I don't know how to prepare it and I don't really have a history of eating it. So, yeah, I think uh, Wonderplatz was a big proponent of it. Yeah. I, I should maybe, I should maybe look more into it, but I, I will say it just the just the idea is still off putting. I've, I've, in that, you know, I, I've had to take baby steps, man. Uh, you know, the raw eggs was like, that was a step for me. Uh, even though, you know, throughout childhood, I loved cookie dough. I didn't like cookies, but I liked cookie dough. But you'd always hear, you know, no, no, don't eat that because, you know, you'll get sick or this and that. I've been, oh man, I've been uh, minimum eight eggs a day uh, raw for maybe the past year and a half. And... You know, I have yet to have like any trace of any kind of food poisoning. I mean, that was that was one of those things. Like when you go through that, and then you just suddenly realize that you've just been lied to your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> about this stuff, you know, yeah. like you, it was almost like health. this. Yeah, it was like it was like this solid rule, right? Like if you eat this, you will get sick. Okay, like yeah. eat it for a year and a half. I don't get sick from it. I've had salmonella a couple times. Um, it's always came from restaurants and it's always came from like salad greens. Yeah. Yeah. Like last time I got it at Chipotle and 
<laughs> I got horribly sick. I was practically hallucinating for three days. Yeah. Right? I was, oh, I was working with this, uh, I was working for this crazy um, French-Israeli lady who was trying to direct, like, an art film, but then, like, halfway into the shoot, she started wanting to add elements to it that would make it more like a Jeffrey Epstein production. And it, was the, it was a very, very bad time to get sick and paranoid because, like, when I get fevers, I uh, I tend to hallucinate pretty intensely. And uh, so, you know, I'm sick during this period, and then, you know, I have this crazy woman calling me, and she's threatening to commit suicide by jumping off of her hotel balcony and, you know, and like, trying to... It's, what do you, why do you think that is? Like, what what mechanism is the body... Is it making you dream so that it can, you know, focus on other things of healing? Or what do you think fever is doing there? Or why do we hallucinate I, while we, when we have fevers? I mean, I... One explanation that somebody gave to me that, uh, I don't know, it sounded logical enough, so I went with it, was that, you know, if you have a big head... And I, I have... Uh, I can really not even buy hats you know like i've always wanted to get a cowboy hat and they just don't fit all right i, I guess they everything's bigger in texas except the iqs well you're but, six uh, seven right yeah but you know with that you probably there's a there would be a larger pineal gland so basically when you have a fever you have all this heat then the parts of your brain which could release you know dmt or some sort of other um, endogenous hallucinogenic substances that can be activated, right? Like, you know, there's documented cases where, you know, women have, uh, from the pain of childbirth, they've triggered DMT, right? People after car accidents, this and that, and they have these, you know, crazy psychoactive experiences. So, uh, and actually, I, I think I remember hearing that it's, uh, it's generally what happens as you die. One of yeah. the last things that happens in the brain is there's a huge release of DMT. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think with that, I mean, I, I think we are really, we're not talking about just a, a chemical or a molecule. We're talking about something that seems to have a, uh, a spiritual significance that, you know, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of understanding. Have you done ayahuasca in South America? I have not. That's the one. It's the entities. It's like people always talk about like, you know, like they'll see like a Joker character talking to them and all this stuff. I'm like, this is just, this is a little too much. <laughs> uh, well, I think it has a role, right? The, the ayahuasca, like I wouldn't advise people smoke an isolated DMT pen. <clears throat> and I'm not recommending that people everyone go out and do ayahuasca either. I haven't done it I so you know it's pure conjecture on my behalf what I'm saying but from what I've seen from what I've heard of people that have done it um, you know it's it's not their first psychedelic foray they've done a lot of spiritual work before you should come close to these kinds of things but it does uh, I'm interested in trying it because it, it gives you a it seems to give you a deep look at your psyche and a deep look at things that you might not have been conscious of that you can then take into uh, the rest of your life and, you know, work through these issues that we all have. Um, 
again, I'm not qualified to say well, these things because I haven't tried it, but it does. I think there's two really interesting instances of when um, when societal institutions or civilizations have adopted um, compounds like this, uh, you know, DMT and some of your other really potent hallucinogens. Uh, the first being the Aztecs. And I think also the Mayans did it, but the Aztecs would do it. And, you know, you have this very advanced civilization that actually came about, you know, it wasn't in existence for like a continuous 2,000 years before the Spaniards arrived. I think it was around four centuries that the empire had lasted. But it was a rapid development in a fairly short period of time. But you would have, you know, just insane technological feats, but it was also paired with, this mass human sacrifice, right? And then there in, um, you look at it during World War II, where you had the SS was actually doing a lot of this kind of stuff up in their castle. And just the sheer amount of technological output of Nazi Germany in the final two years of the war, it's really mind-blowing. And you had rocket propulsion invented, you had uh, jet propulsion, you had a lot of the groundwork um, that went into nuclear weapons, a lot of this kind of crazy experimental stuff, right? And, I mean, our space program was ran by Nazis, (laughs) that way. I mean, and guys who were in this, Werner von Braun, the architect of the rocket that took us to the moon, you know, he was in the SS. So, I don't know. There's this, there's an interesting connection there. Um, the idea, heard, yeah. the idea with them is that, uh, they were focusing on these endemic psychological states, um, through, you know, tantric breathing and other things you know, removing, and DMT is, is a pathway to that, removing, for most psychedelics, the argument is that you take the drugs, they remove the filter that keeps us in this 3D reality, and then you are able to communicate, this is what, you know, people say, is that you communicate with these entities that are around us all the time, we just can't see them. You know, we know scientifically that there are other dimensions, uh, we just can't see it because, you know, we operate in the 3D realm, you know, the savannah field, so we've never uh, needed the kind of equipment to deal with this other stuff and we wouldn't be able to process it. So our brains are a filter in that sense to only really work with the 3D realm uh, and, you know, that's all we can see in front of us and work with our hands and things. But then the psychedelics, seem to take away that filter and this is why you know the elite have these child sacrifice things is that that kind of stuff allegedly draws the entities that give them these ideas these demonic entities um that they then communicate with allegedly again and it's a a trade-off it's a trade-off you're trade you're you know you're trading blood for uh information um, and that's what happened with the Aztecs, right? That's probably yeah. what happened is that they figured this out. You know, that they, they have carvings of the pineal gland um, being like this, you know, it, it's like highlighted in the brain. So back then people right. realized that this area of the brain seemed to have some kind of higher significance that's related to 
communication yeah, you, with these other realms, let's say. You have cave you have cave paintings showing the double helix structure of DNA, you know, centuries before we ever sequence the human genome. So people are definitely tapping into uh, something there, right? And I, I don't even I think hallucinogen is actually a bad term for it because yeah. I've talked to people who they've been in like a you know a group ayahuasca setting. You'll have twenty people, right? They'll go under, go into this trip, and then they come out of it and they're talking about it, and they discover that oh, they've actually been talking to the same entities, right? Yeah. So it's like if this was a hallucination, these would all be kind of independent events, right? People would yeah. be having their all, they would be see, every trip would be different, right? They would be yeah. seeing different things. But for people to have a consistent shared experience, that to me, it's the smoking gun that no, yeah. this is not just something that the brain is generating as a result of uh, taking the substance. Now, I think the other reason too, why I've just avoided DMT is, uh, I have tried psilocybin and that was so mind blowing that the concept of taking anything, you know, more heavy duty than that, it was just like, no, this would like, (laughs) uh, this would completely dissolve me. (laughs) This, you know, that was already transformative enough. Like you have a fairly rational, logical mind. You're probably not predisposed to, schizophrenia or things like that and well those people, I would you say, know the the, the rationality the the rationality definitely went out the window in joshua tree um yeah but it was it was interesting because there was this awareness of these other dimensions a kind of uh unifying power throughout the universe and just a lot of uh a lot of things there i mean it was something that you just it carries you away um, yeah. but it, it, it does, I think it does depend on your personality type. So it'll move you, you know, when they score these things in the research, it'll move someone on the openness, uh, you know, one of the components of the big five personality traits, they'll move 30 points up in terms of becoming more open and, you know, you think of openness as a good trait, but it's not a good trait if it's paired with neuroticism. So, you know, I've known some people who they would have like, a, you know, they had a very good experience like the first time. And then the second time they would have, or third or fourth, they would have a terribly traumatic experience that would leave them, you know, I mean, just lingering effects even for a couple of years being just like more paranoid or more you know afraid that this or that is happening and you know they mm. hear sirens and freak out and you know like oh god what's happening and like thinking that it's definitely must be happening to someone they know right like you know a car yeah. accident or something so it, it, I, it depends a lot I think on you know how your personality is geared going into that and I'd say that for you know the people I know for every seven who try it you know maybe one actually has the right personality makeup to really uh, have a productive transformative 
experience. And then yeah. a couple others, it'll just be just kind of fun for them, but they're not really going to get much out of it. You yeah, know, it's more of just like just a good. You know, they're having a good time at a party or something. Yeah, the idea of taking the stuff at a party, I, yeah, you know, I hear people doing this, and I can't relate to that at all because like I did not want to talk to anybody else or do it. Yeah. I wanted to go I wanted to literally go hug a tree and which I did <laughs> it was like I could feel the life inside right exactly so, it also depends on dose like yeah. if you have a little bit it's going to be that microdose feeling it's gonna you know promote neurogenesis uh, which is obviously always good new brain matter uh, and it yeah, my, in, in regards yeah. to openness it it helps break up thought patterns that might have been bad for you or habits that you've kind of fallen into and it does it increases your openness so you're more aware of things and if you're more aware of your own failures that can be anxiety producing to people um or maybe you know with with the whole like ego disillusion thing it for the first time maybe lets people know that you know you are not this separate thing to everyone else and that's where the love kind of comes from it's like wow i actually am part of this whole greater earth experience that's why you want to hug a tree yeah yeah i mean i think it uh you know i i don't i don't advise or promote but i'm not you know i'm not gonna do a school marm thing either but at at the same time my philosophy around the stuff has always been um infrequent in the number of times you would use, but enough dosage wise where you're going to get something out of it. And and I'm not talking about any kind of heroic dose or anything like that because I'm, I'm very sensitive to, you know, any sort of compound like this. Right. So, um, you know, I don't need much (laughs) and I guess it's the way I metabolize it or something like that. But, you know, I, I'm would be more apt to do it as like a, you know, one-off trip where I'm going somewhere very special, very significant, or something like that, and I make a f- big deal out of it, right? Yeah. You know, it's a Treat it right. Fight. You know, have it ceremonial. Yeah. Don't have it at a party yeah. where you're going to wig out and, and, and this was, talk to this, people. Yeah, this was done ceremonially. Yeah. I mean, we had a uh, we had an Indian medicine man in there uh, doing the full thing, but. Yeah. You know, then it's like it's going to be more special that way too. So um, that's that. And I, you know, I think it's it's basically going to any negative effects um, aside from just like taking too much and having a bad trip. Any negative effects that these might have on you anyway. I would rather take that hit and really have a interesting experience and get something out of it than you know, using a lot of frequent lower doses and maybe taking a possible you yeah. know, negative consequences of it, but without really getting that much out of it, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's something that's, yeah, something that stayed with me for a very long time. It was a very, uh, it was a very religious experience. I mean, at, at one point, um, I was watching a Billy Graham sermon and I had like tears just pouring because it was like I understood it better better than I'd ever understood anything before. It reminded me of this time in college where um, 
a, uh, a friend of mine who was an atheist and he was like kind of into psychedelics and stuff. He got really like upset and kind of guilty feeling because he introduced someone to LSD and then they watched the passion of the Christ and became like a devoted evangelical Christian. <laughs> he like blamed himself because this guy had been an agnostic before. So Yeah. Yeah, I think well, it, it it gives you feelings of like connectedness that you might have had in a you know like you can like this isn't the only path to access these psych- psychedelic states uh, you know like religious singing and that's when you see people go into fucking fits and everything it's because they're dancing breathing singing they're committed to this shared energy and that can bring them to these states of delirium and you know arousing the same kind of parts of the brain that make people feel this connectedness and everything so psychedelics are like a shortcut to that and so that can be both good and bad um it just depends again how you use it and ultimately everyone do their own research don't take what i'm saying as gospel or whatever and like anything, there's going to be a risk, you know, when you have alcohol, the, that kind of damage kind of gets discounted. But how much damage is, have, you know, I've done to my body, binge drinking over the years uh, when I was younger, um, that gets kind of brushed under the, you know, so many people literally die from alcohol and whether it's just societal kind of focus, we go, oh, look at this guy who went crazy after he had this and kind of it's a balance of, what's actually doing the harm, what you focus on. Again, the media focuses on the one thing. Um, it, it is a bit all up in the air. And you have to do your own judgment and research. Like all these things, like they've been lying to about diet for so long. And part of the reason why psychedelics are outlawed is because they help dissolve these structures that we get stuck in from day to day. Like the routine of going to your job that you, you hate just because that's what everyone said. You've got to make money and you do have to make money or whatever um, to exist in a society, but to do it in a way that's so boring and repetitive just because you get learnt into that behavior and all of that. Well, it's, like it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I, I quit my job um, the week after. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And what were you doing before? It was like, like just generally. It was like, uh, it was just this this office job like you know for a tech company but I had this supervisor who was uh, extremely obese and she actually was unfireable because of this because like her sleep apnea counted as a disability so she could like show up to work at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon and she would <laughs> she would do this and she would like waltz oh, in no. waddle in <laughs> And she'd have like this venti Starbucks in her hand and I don't know, carrying a bag with a cake or something in the other. And then she would go into her office and review security footage and see if anyone came in at like, let's say nine Oh five instead of nine AM. And you know, like write people up for this. And she's like four hours late. It's like talk about projection. I got written up actually for doing uh, push ups in my office during the lunch break. <laughs> and, you know, for like creating an uncomfortable work environment. 
And they're like, so, uncomfortable for who? Like, any, you know, <clears throat> any of the guys who walked by would, like, obviously not be bothered by this. And, you know, I think the women would enjoy it. So I didn't see that it was being disruptive or anything like that. But just, you know, just <clears throat> petty tyrants. You know, people will, people, if they're not able to, you know, run a country and execute masses of people, they'll they'll unleash their tyranny wherever they can. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, if these people ever did get control of the government, that's, I mean, it would make uh, the genocides of the past century look like a joke. <laughs> Cause so why did you quit that job? Because of the psychedelics? <clears throat> it, was, it was one of those things where, you know, I had known for, like, quite a few months since I had made the switch over because I was pretty happy with it when I had a different manager but when I switched to a different project and uh, was put on her team you know the environment went downhill fairly quickly but it was like it had taken so long to get a job because the job market when I graduated uh, like still in the fallout of the recession uh you know, it was like a year finding a job, any job. Yeah. And so it was that, there was that uncertainty there because it was like, I was, I'd become miserable because of this work environment, but it was kind of <clears throat> questioning, like, did I actually have what it took to, you know, make it financially yeah. outside of that right it, it provided a degree of financial security and that's kind of that's hard to give up on and you know strike out on your own and it's just a lot of uncertainty you know you you gotta uh and it, you know i didn't have much experience doing that kind of thing um so i think it was it was that that i kind of realized during the experience, I was like, well, no matter how things go, it'll work out okay. Yeah. You know, like, even if this, like, just goes horribly wrong and I just, you know, I'm flat busted broke, I'll be fine. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, like, created a kind of confidence. And, yeah, I, I quit that job uh, in a very uh, strong fashion. I burned my bridges there. It was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, couldn't put them down as a reference anymore on like future resumes, but nobody really uses those anymore, so it, it's fine. Uh, and if anybody asked, I would just give them the full story. Because uh, I think I think a lot of people in the professional world actually relate to that, so they yeah. would understand it. But um, of course, it's like uh, yeah. it, it. It's it's more that's the kind of culture of work today is like this school marmory and you're treated like a fucking child in a lot of positions. Like obviously there are good nine to five jobs, but for most people, the job market is not such that you can instantly leave a job and go into something else unless you're very, very in high demand. Um, so that is kind of one of the ways that they control you. Uh, if yeah. you can't, like you have to adhere to workplace culture and smart people who treat you like shit uh, if you're below them on the hierarchy. And that in itself, going back to the earlier point, is if you're doing that on the daily, um, 
then you become more and more meek and agreeable. And it's one of the main things that I always say, like, yes, make your job work for you as much as possible, but don't make, like, you find another job if your life and your health is decreasing um, when you're at that job or because of that job. And that's most of the time now. Like, the people that I know that are working purely in the office now, uh, their bodies are decaying because they're sitting all the time, they're under fluorescent light, they're absent of daylight, of sunlight, um, and just the general, you know, I do a lot of work on my computer, so I'm hypocritical in that sense, but like, it's, it's such a different animal when you're doing it for someone who, and working under someone that is not smarter than you, and it, it doesn't, like it's not a respectful relationship and you're just doing it because you have to collect the check. That's like a spiritually bad place to right. be. Right. And you know, and there's no purpose in it either, right? It's not about yeah. doing good work. It's about navigating the office politics. So you can't, there's nothing, there's nothing in it for you spiritually. If you have, you know, if you have good work, you can actually put up with a harsh yeah. environment and do pretty well because it's like you have something, right? You're achieving yeah. something. But this kind of, you know, the petty office politics taking precedence and the work not really matter, mattering that much. And, you know, it's not about doing good work. It's about doing things according to the processes and best practices that have been laid out and this and that. So, you know, you could, like, discover things that would be fairly obvious, right? And this would be, like, a, a big improvement or a big mistake that you could avoid. And they would carry on with it anyway, because to address that, that would be outside of the established procedures. You'd have to create, yeah. you know, a new precedent, and you know, they weren't interested in doing that. So, you know, and I thought too, I I thought that I had like migraines kind of naturally, and you know, just kind of put up with them. It would be at least a weekly occurrence, and it turned out that you know. Getting out of a fluorescent office made them completely disappear. But, mm. you know, I, I took this step. I called in my resignation, uh, like on a Monday. And, you know, I was working on a film set by the end of the week. I was just out on a trip. And then I ended up just staying in California. Um, and, you know, I kind of jumped right into it. And then, you know, I go from working... Uh, eight hours a day and feeling completely miserable to then, you know, putting in 16 hour days on shoot days and being totally invigorated. Right. I would wake up before my alarm clock the next morning because yeah. I was actually excited about what I was doing. I was excited to go to work and yeah, do stuff. So it, it was crazy to me because physically, physically it felt like I could, you know, it was doing all I could to put in the bare minimum like 40 hours a week and it just, it felt so long it felt draining I was just exhausted yeah. all the time uh, posture being affected from sitting down and all of this kind of stuff and then you know I jump into this environment which you know on paper you would think <clears throat> would be so much worse and would be impossible to cope with and it was like I my body uh, just came alive you know it was like mm. I was it's hard to describe. It was like my, you know, even my metabolism had changed, and 
um, suddenly it was just like kind of burning to do something and to really get after it. And, you know, that was, uh, I think that was about as, about as positive experience as you could have. You have a religious experience, you take care of your, uh, your work and career issues, all of this stuff. But, um, yeah, maybe, maybe atypical. I might've gotten lucky, but, uh, it might've just been something that like was in the cards, you know, it was something I needed to do, but that's, uh, that's kind of also my approach here is like, if you were to do it, you don't do it just for kicks, you know, you need some kind of intention, you need something to process, um, you know, while you're, while you're in that state, right, you may as well take advantage of it. Yeah, intention, some things that are on your mind that you want to work out, um, but that thing about you quitting your work and your body kind of changing as a result of it, like, it's, that's a spiritual side to health in a way, like, it's not necessarily just the physical um, that's impacting the body and just the you know the diet and things like that and I'm sure that changed as well but light and air fresh air is such a massive point of our nutrition in a way you know what the body needs if you take nutrition to not just mean you know what we eat and consume that way but health itself like you cannot be healthy um if you're spiritually, you know, in a very bad place, like you're not enjoying what you're doing, like you hate every day, you're forced, like your alarm, like I don't use an alarm anymore, but you know, back in the day when you'd have to get up early for work, it was like that alarm was just like, no, not again, you know, the horrible creeping yeah. feeling. And now it's like, boom, feet on the floor, don't need the alarm. Not that I recommend no one use an alarm anyway, just get their sleep cycle in check. But you know, you, you see the point there, but the Western's view of medicine, view of the body at the moment is like it's this well-oiled machine and what inputs you put in affect, you know, the, the machine and what fuel you put in. And that's true. That's true. But it's not the only thing. And it's, you know, it, it's not like you catch these things that are chronic health diseases that don't really have one cause as such, like, you know, a virus enters the body or something. It's, it's more... There are inbuilt human processes as a function of your mental state, your spiritual state, that these blockages occur in the body through the energy centers, um, as well as having bad food and all the rest of the you know, nitty gritty Western science side of it. But I think people think that if they just eat well and exercise, uh, yes, it will improve tenfold if your diet and no exercise before, uh, but you can access these other layers of energy and these other sources of vital energy through the soul once you are acting in a way that is congruent with how you feel on the inside yeah totally agree um one thing i i think it's important to note too that with psychoactive uh compounds that, and it doesn't doesn't get emphasized i think as much as it should is the quality uh of whatever you're putting into your body uh, is just of the absolute utmost importance, right? If, if mushrooms are grown wrong and they, they can have uh, molds in the substrate or something else that can 
throw off the effects of this and can make people have, you know, really bad traumatic experience. I mean, you know, I, I've, I haven't had a bad trip because like I said I've only done it once and it was positive, but known people who have had them and, you know, it's, it's really something you want to take care to avoid without, without worrying too much about it because some people will worry themselves right into you know, a bad state of mind that will then cause this. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, you know, there's also, you're dealing with a, you know, market where you don't have a lot of regulated quality and, you know, there's a lot of varying degrees there. Um, So you do have to be very careful on sourcing. And and this really goes for everything, you know, like... uh, dispensary marijuana you know the the stuff i I think it's complete garbage (laughs) compared to um what some of the you know connoisseur growers would come up with um and unfortunately the the latter's gotten so hard to find i just a couple years ago i just uh stopped it all together because i'm like this stuff that they're growing it's being grown in mass they must be spraying something on it or cutting it too early or this or too late yeah. or this or that. And growing it inside it's as just well like, in artificial lights. Yeah, it's like, it's a complete downer. It's, you know, it's like smoking Percocet or something, right? I, I, don't, I don't get the point. Because yeah. uh, to me, it was always about, you could basically you could have a near psychedelic experience um, with it. It was very... Yeah, introspective and creative and energetic. Yeah, and you know if you don't have that, if it's just about you know getting numb, like I I, yeah I I don't have enough you know anxiety or whatever else to like need something to calm me down. Like that's just my disposition. You know, yeah, same. I I need something to wake me up. I'm a stimulant guy. Uh, You know, I've got that German blood. So, (laughs) but uh, you know, and and it's like. I talked to a guy, he uh, was one of the most interesting, uh, you know, random people you would talk to at a party or something to happen across, but he actually did, uh, he did drug testing for a lot of the cocaine traffickers in the Midwest, and he was like this uh, PhD student at a uh, pretty elite university when it comes to chemistry and such but like he was telling me about a lot of the adulterants that they were putting in cocaine you know like over 50 percent of the stuff by weight would end up being like a shark tranquilizer or something just insane and it's like destroys the nerve cells in your nose and this and that and it's you know it's the same stuff like i think uh you know Pure MDMA probably has a hugely beneficial therapeutic use for post-traumatic stress disorder. But trying to get quality pure MDMA is, you know, nearly impossible. I mean, basically the only place you could get it would be uh, one of these universities conducting trials if you happen to know someone who can, you know, swipe a few grains. But... uh, that's that's I think a, a issue that you know it's huge to me and it just it doesn't get really enough attention is just how much of this stuff 
is not even really what we're talking about, right? It's not the it's not the, even the same substance, yeah. and you know there's a lot of a uh, lot of things to look out for there, because you know I mean people people think they're taking like MDMA or ketamine or something at a rave, and it ends up the dealer had been um, cutting some heroin before he got around to the rave drugs. And there was still a couple grains of fentanyl on the table, and some of this gets swept up into this stuff, and then suddenly mm. you have you know four kids dying at a music festival. You know this this kind of thing happens. So that's uh, I think that's of the absolute utmost importance, and that's probably the strongest case for legalization. I, I'm yeah. really I'm really hesitant. I'm not big on normalizing a lot of things i like to keep these things like off in the shadows where it's elite and exclusive i don't want everybody because i i think you can look at weed legalization in america and see what a disaster it's been for normies getting into it right they, they ruin every trend right so they yeah. have to leave us something they have to leave us stimulants which is like you know, maybe there should be a panel to get to decide, like, okay, you're allowed to do cocaine and then we'll have <laughs> a special a special farm with, you know, like organic farmers that are doing the co they're growing the coca, this and that. Yeah. Um, this sort of that. I don't know exactly how to work that out. But I, I think the adulterant problem is one of the more potent cases for trying to create some sort of legal framework. Um, where this stuff would come from, or at least you know, at least targeting enforcement in such a way that you know you're kind of leaving your purest people uh, untouched by law enforcement. You're really going after the low quality ones. But <laughs> I don't, I don't know if we could get the DEA to agree. Uh, no, the power structures that are against all that stuff are. Um very heavily ingrained in everything at the moment, you know, lobbyists and big pharma and all the rest of it is, uh, I mean, people don't realize that there are these massive, massive billion dollar companies that have a vested interest in keeping you sick, selling you drugs that are meant to help you from the symptoms, but don't address the fucking core, the causes. And then they're just profiting off your illness and, you know, insurance rebates and medical insurance and it's all connected so whenever you have something like that it's not impossible to actually put in place policies that are going to genuinely help the health of the individual yeah and look i'm i'm you know very cognizant of a lot of the downsides on these things and i like to you know keep everything in mind as far as that goes not get too yeah. gung-ho over any one thing but the fact also remains that like any downsides or harmful effects we're talking about they look you know aside from something getting adulterated with a really dangerous uh substance like fentanyl this is minuscule in comparison to the damage that's caused by psychiatric drugs which yeah. doctors freely prescribe, you know, yeah. I mean, antidepressants can just can have permanent negative consequences on people that you, you know, don't bounce back from. There's, there's germline effects that you know will affect reproduction, will affect what your kids' uh, epigenetic profiles look like, and all of this kind of stuff. And 
that's that's what's like really psychotic to me is like you know we talk about this stuff and we're careful with it and then you know they're out here <laughs> getting housewives hopped up on every you know new anti-anxiety and antidepressant yeah. known to man it's uh it's really crazy not even to mention you know there, there's the non-psychoactive psychoactives i mean these lockdown policies have had such a huge psychological impact that we don't really address yeah right it's like saw this argument that was saying well you know they were talking about how florida is basically uh like ranks in the middle of american states like 25th or something when it comes to the death rate from covid they're saying you know so like 30,000 people there have died, but if they were really, really strict about it, like California, that might have saved like 3,000 more lives. I'm like, well, in a state of 20 million people, you might have saved, you know, an extra, uh, sorry, they said it would be an extra 2,000 lives that would be saved, not 20,000, but 2,000 lives. You might, like, even if that's true, right if your model is correct and most models have not been correct but if that model is correct yeah you might get 2,000 saved lives there but to throw someone to throw 20 million people into that level of an extreme lockdown that California's had you know you're talking about psychological damage to millions of people yeah and yeah you know, and literal deaths as well right like suicide overdose that all increases yeah. Yeah, and early deaths, though, that'll be a result of the psychological damage that's inflicted, right? I mean, people have, we've seen alcoholism rates really spike in the last year. And it's like, well, are we even going to, like, net lives saved when you consider that, you know, you might have 500,000 people develop cirrhosis in the liver next year, you know, and a percentage of those will die from it. And then... Others will have to, you know, have a liver transplant, like live on these immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their life, which tends to, you know, result in early death by some kind of other infection. So we're not, the way they're tailoring this stuff, you're just not getting a, uh, you're not getting a very holistic view of it. And it's also... And I think it's tied into this insistence they have of being, of taking like equality, the concept of equality, and not just applying it like politically or like, you know, people are like equally important under the law or something like that, but saying they're like literally biologically equal, right? So like a 12 year old kid needs to avoid the virus in the same way that a 79 year old nursing home patient needs to avoid it right yeah. that's how that's how they've carried it out right oh you can't do sports right because yeah. the you know the virus might jump off onto the soccer ball you know kid thought it was like you you know they've got to stay 12 feet apart and whatever else and it's like that level of avoidance that might make sense if you're in a risk group but it, it's going to do far far more damage in these groups that are total non-risk groups. Like, it's, you know, kids just don't get sick from this. Like, when it happens, we're talking, like, you know, a 400-pound 12-year-old or something. It's, like, these very rare tail cases. Yeah. 
that they would have gotten deadly sick from any other infection. I mean, kids get much sicker from the flu, uh, which is, yeah, in my experience, is an absolutely horrible <laughs> thing to get. I mean, I would get, like I said, I hallucinate with fevers. So I would get the flu, develop a heavy fever, be vomiting my guts up for a week, and, you know, just like in this state of delirium. And I, it almost feels to me like, uh, you know, my inability to get sick with COVID uh, is like some kind of karmic payback for all the horrific flu strains I've had. But Well, all of these policies, you have to look at them like people, unfortunately, the reigning narrative is like, oh, but this doesn't make sense. They're treating X group like the other group. And, you know, that doesn't help, actually doesn't help the population and it's like you yes that's true but they are operating from the space that they want to that like they want to inflict these things they want you to feel lonely they want you to feel powerless they want you to have the inability to mobilize and communicate to talk about these things so they want to treat everyone the same they want to have kids you know completely isolated and on zoom school and all the rest of it it's like it's taking away all the human experiences, wearing masks, you can't read the body language or speak to people properly, you can't breathe properly. Uh, so it, it does make sense that all of these policies, like if you look at it from the point of view that they are actively trying to harm us, using this COVID as a, you know, as the reason why, but actually there are more nefarious kind of goals uh, behind it. And it just depends whether people accept that and just accept the rules that don't make sense and they don't add up to anyone with an ounce of common sense versus just saying, uh, actually, no. And that's what you see in Florida, yeah. you know, thankfully, and in some places around the world. And you don't see people dying in the street because it's all fear-based and because really it's not that dangerous to people unless you are very old or very fat. And even then, you know, likely you're, you're vulnerable to everything. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that there would be, it's, it's like when, uh, when I had, I have the, uh, I have a mutation called factor five, uh, that's inherited that leads to, uh, increased likelihood of blood clotting. So I had a blood clot in one of my fingers. It was at the knuckle and uh, looked like I had frostbite. I mean, the end of the finger turned black, fingernail fell off. It was a very weird experience. Mm. Um, but, you know, because I've, I think I've kept my, uh, you know, diet and exercise and all this uh, in line for a long time, that was kind of the extent of it. So you, really you would have the, the groups you mentioned and then you would have maybe a, a subgroup that would have some sort of, there would be some sort of genetic component and of course uh, the yeah. sensible thing to have done would have been instead of trying to get everyone to take the COVID test it would be test people's blood find out who is going to have like the incre increased clotting risk from it and then for those people you can have them on a low dose anticoagulant throughout this whole deal right you take a baby aspirin every day like we tell people to do to avoid strokes and there you go and it's thing is like the, you know it's it, it's serious enough to 
to want to treat because it can go wrong along a couple of pathways and you you know you want to avoid these instances but it's more like you know, there's a strong parallel with the AIDS epidemic in that to the broader population it's just really not a threat um, yeah. and to the extent that it is a threat it's a threat because we're very you know obese unhealthy country yeah um, but you know you want to develop effective treatments and it's been their resistance to this that's actually gotten me, you know, I, I didn't want to, I, I really did not want to think that this was some sort of deliberate scheme because, you know, that just seems to, you know, nightmarish yeah. almost, right? It's just easier to just think that, okay, this bubbled up naturally. But there are, uh, there are aspects of this that point towards definitely that it was engineered. Uh, if not intentionally leaked, it was they were doing gain of function testing on SARS viruses to make them more deadly and less treatable. So early on, you know, they always referred to hydroxychloroquine as being some kind of quack drug, and that it just like came from nowhere. And you know, why would anyone even think about this? Well, actually, the origins of why they started using it in the first place was it was very effective against SARS. And this is just SARS-2. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is that the how hydroxychloroquine would work is it would prevent the... Um, I think it would prevent the endosome from making contact with a cell and infecting it. Right? So it kind of plugged up the hole, you know block the uh, route that it would attach and so the one thing that one one thing that's changed and it's the first time we've seen it in a coronavirus right this family of viruses doesn't have this site but in this one it does it's called a, a furin site and it's another place where the virus can latch onto a cell and hydroxychloroquine doesn't block that one so you do get some benefit if you take this early on, because you are like reducing, you know, the ability of the virus. So you lower the viral load basically, right? So the virus, you're not going to have as much of it and your immune system is going to have more time to react and form antibodies. So if you actually takes it, take it in combination with a different drug though, you can actually block that other site. And so you can fully block the virus from getting into the cells but you have to take this other one. Now, what happened was when they uploaded the information about the genetic sequence and, you know, they were doing all the sharing back and forth with World Health and Chinese officials and all that, they left out this site, right? So they didn't mention that there's this new site that the virus can use to bind to the cells and gain entry. So that was like deliberately left out <laughs> of this information that was put out and then put into supercomputers that were determining, all right, which are the most likely treatments that might work for this and this, that, and the other. And so that threw a lot of researchers off early on. And, you know, you had this weird case where, um, there was a raid and the stockpile of hydroxychloroquine in France was stolen. Uh, happened very early on in this and just a lot of a lot of weird things and the the fact that 
you know, you have blood clotting is a significant problem with this virus. But if you go onto the National Institutes of Health treatment guidelines, what they're telling doctors is um, don't prescribe blood thinners to outpatients. Don't put inpatients, so patients who are hospitalized, don't put them on heparin and these other blood thinners. And don't even, they don't even recommend, they actually recommend against uh, checking the blood levels, the, the uh, biomarkers that would indicate that there's a problem with clots going on. And, you know, like, we're over a year into this. This is a known uh, issue that we have. And that, the fact that that is left out, that it, it's not just left out, but it's they deliberately are telling people to do the opposite of what they need to be doing in a hospital setting. That, you know, I see something like that, and I'm like, I can't really get to any other conclusion than that this is a deliberate uh, setup really to condition us and usher in you know some completely new world that I probably don't want to <laughs> probably yeah. not a world I would want to be in no it's a world that we have to stop from coming to fruition and whether that's you know we go full in the woods and figure something out in there um, I think it's that's probably one of the better moves, but you know, there's still there's still room for people to shrug this off. I think as long as everyone just acts bravely and does their part, uh, it just depends whether the psyops and the fucking demoralization wins in the end. But uh, you know, I have faith as always. Um, but man, we've coming up to two and a half hours, bro. So. I want to thank you so much for this exquisite conversation, Dr. Bren Braddock. Uh, where can people reach you and what are you working on at the moment? Uh, you can reach me on Twitter, at uh, graduatedben. And right now what I'm working on at the moment is um, a kind of personal project where I am importing uh, COVID experimental medications. Well, not fully experimental. They've been run through clinical trials. They're very effective, but you can't get uh, you can't get them over the counter in the U.S. And the FDA is telling doctors not to write prescriptions. So I am importing this stuff from India, and uh, there will be a how-to guide coming out pretty soon on how you can set up your own COVID buyers club. Um, so that's mm. the uh, that's the next thing coming. Very good. Can't wait to see what happens with that. Um, but yeah, thanks again, man. Appreciate your time. I'm going to put this up tonight. Uh, but yeah, any closing words for the audience? Uh, good night. <laughs> good night, everyone. <laughs> thanks for listening at home. We'll see you next time on Softcast.